Good morning and welcome to our webinar. I'm Kathy Boswell with InSource, Indiana's Resource Center for Families with Special Needs. My co-host is Jill Summerlot, and we have a special treat for you. We have a guest speaker, Ashley Quick, and I'll introduce her in just a couple of moments. I'd like to go ahead and do some housekeeping issues. Hopefully you've had an opportunity to review the welcome to our webinar slide. We're not using the chat box at this time, so please open your Q&A box. You can post your questions there. You may choose to post them anonymously if you would prefer. Uh, Jill and I will be watching for those, and we will make sure those questions get posed to Ashley so that she can address them. We do want your questions to be answered, but please understand very complicated and fact-specific questions may have to be handled outside of the webinar, but we, we do want to get your questions answered and we'll hopefully be able to get contact information to you. At the conclusion of the webinar, an evaluation survey is going to be provided. And if you need a certificate of attendance, question six provides a link so that you can download that. But please take a moment to do the survey. We, we do value and appreciate your, your feedback. If you are participating only by telephone, in other words, you haven't logged in to the computer so you're not watching the slides, we know you're there, but we do not know who you are. And we need that information in order to get you that certificate and to log your information. So we're asking, again, for call-in users only, contact insource at insource.org or call our toll-free number 800-332 4433 by the end of business day today to identify yourself to staff that you did in fact attend our webinar even though it was only by phone and we can then make those arrangements to get that certificate to you. Please understand Jill and I do not do certificates so it's important that you contact the South Bend office and I believe that information was provided in your reminder email from yesterday. This will be recorded and it will eventually be on our website under archived webinars. And we hope that you'll be able to share that with other people. And of course, if you have any questions, you can always contact us at insource at insource.org. Okay, I see a question. Will I be seeing the speaker when it starts? I hear the speaker, but I'm looking at the welcome to our webinar page. We are not projecting video at this time. So all that you will see will be the, the slides as we go through and, or as Ashley goes through and, and discusses it. So I'm glad you found the question and answer box. Please post your questions there. That would be, that would be great. Okay, so today's topic is the case for, for presuming competence in students with disabilities. And our guest speaker is Ashley Quick, and she's going to make the case for presuming competence in every student regardless of the presence of a disability, which is a little different than our, our typical approach. Um, this webinar will be the second in our inclusion series, and we do have one more coming up April 7th, which I'll discuss at the end of the presentation. But I'd like to go ahead and introduce Ashley. Ashley, if you wanna go ahead and advance the slide. Ashley is a, a team member and a subject matter expert for public consulting for for Public Consulting Group, or PCG, I believe is what they go by. She's also uh, got 10 years as a special education.
teacher. So she's eminently qualified to um, share this information with you. So at this time, I'm going to turn the presentation over to Ashley and she'll do a much better job introducing herself than I did. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be able to spend time with you all today um, in these unprecedented times. <laughs> I'm glad we were still able to do this today. So, um, Kathy, you did a great job of giving just this brief overview about what I'm hoping to, to cover today. And truly, I am um, willing to attempt to answer any questions um, any of you may have. And if I don't have an answer for you, I certainly um, am more than happy to uh, track down an answer for you or give you my, my best guess or hook you up with a resource and, and things like that. So I really want this to be a useful time for everyone. Um, so let's just get into it. Um, what you're looking at right now is, um, the, so I, I'm from the Project Success Resource Center, which is another resource center just like InSource in the state of Indiana. Only the mission of Project Success is, um, let me flip forward here. We really focus on um, providing professional development to teachers and administrators of students with more significant uh, disabilities oftentimes referred to maybe as the 1%, we're thinking of students with moderate and significant cognitive disabilities, things like that. Um, but my message today is, is universal across, you know, um, any level and range of disability. But so what we do, um, like I said, is provide professional development in all these areas that you see here on the screen. Um, but something that we do and which why I chuckled a moment ago is when we usually whenever we're presenting, we introduce ourselves by showing the cuter elements of our lives, which for me is my two children. So um, this is my daughter, Aaliyah, on the left. She loves horses. And my son, Jackson, on the right. He is a star basketball player. Um, they are twins. They are eight and a half, I would say. Um, they'll be nine in July. So um, they're the reason why I do so much of what I do. And I just like to share that little bit of, um, you know, little bit of my personal life there so you know where I'm coming from. I skipped past this, but I do just want to draw attention to it. Um, we always try to make sure that people know, parents, teachers, anyone, um, that the Indiana Resource Network exists. It's a fantastic way that um, Indiana is pretty unique in the way that they utilize their, their funding for special education in that they support this variety of resource centers across the state. And each of us has sort of a niche area that we focus on. Um, as I mentioned, Project Success is more focused on the um, population of students with more complex needs. Um, of course, if you're here via InSource, you know the InSource is the parent support network. Um, but you can see all of these icons on the screen, they represent different resource centers that have tons of resources, um, materials, trainings, all just all sorts of supports available. Um, most of them at no cost, which is a big deal, right? When we're thinking about trainings and, and just all sorts of supports, um, it's really important to, for them to be as accessible as possible. So um, I always just wanna make sure to point out that the Indiana Resource Network exists. And if you are curious to know more about any of these uh, centers, if you either visit the link that's shown on this slide, or if you go to the Indiana Department of Education website and type in their search bar IRN, for Indiana Resource Network. It'll bring up a list of all the resource centers, a description of what they do, um, and contact information for how to get a hold of them. So just throwing that out there as some, some additional information for you all. We already sort of talked about this, but as you can see, Project Success is all over the state, um, working with teachers and administrators to 
support specifically students with more significant needs, but sort of what that means more broadly too in the scope of, you know, when we're talking about inclusion uh, as we are today. So our website for Project Success is projectsuccessindiana.com. And once you're there, this is what the landing page looks like. Pretty much anything you might ever uh, be curious about or have an interest in exploring more about is going to be found under that resources tab. So if you click on resources, you'll see just so many um, sort of odds and ends. We have recorded webinars that we've done. We have different templates and things that are a little more geared toward teachers, but it's definitely something that uh, parents might be interested in checking out as well. Guidance from the Department of Ed and just all sorts of things there. So that is our website. Um, and I'm not sure, but I believe we may try to obtain a, a recording of this website for, or this webinar uh, as well to keep it sort of housed on our website too. So um, check back there if, uh, for more resources. All right, enough of this. Housekeeping's great, but let's move on. So this is um, a, a quote or a statement of some kind that I thought would be a good way to start off um, our conversation, our discussion, and, and what we're going to sort of work through here today. It is simple, but I think that it takes a moment of um, really digging deep to think about what it really means. So the absence of evidence, right, there's no evidence of whatever it is that we're talking about, is not evidence of absence. So just because we don't see the evidence of whatever it might be, that's not the same thing as having evidence that that thing is lacking. And so of course today, I'm applying that statement to um, the ability of our students, regardless of their disability category, regardless of the, the um, significance of that disability. If we are looking at a situation where we don't have evidence of their learning or their inability to learn or whatever, that is not the same thing as being able to point to that and say, aha, I have proof that there's not learning going on there or they're not capable of doing that, right? So um, this I think is really gonna ground us in uh, the rest of what we talk about today. So just keep, keep that in the back of your mind that when you're not seeing evidence, that's not the same thing as having the evidence that it's not there, right? That the learning is not there. Here we go. So this is an important thing too, to keep in mind. I'm gonna scooch these things down a little bit. Now this comes from some federal guidance, um, what's known as the Dear Colleague Letter, which came out around the same time as the federal legislation that introduced alternate academic standards for students with more significant needs. But the point here is that under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, of course, I'm sure you all are very familiar with these acronyms, right? Um, in order to make FAPE available, right, free and appropriate public education, part of that experience is that this child must be involved in and make progress in the general education curriculum. Now, some people that is that that um, it really kind of hits them hard and they bristle at that. What do you mean they have to be involved in the general education curriculum? They have a disability, right? And we especially see this um, with our students with more significant needs, but doesn't that mean then that we need to do something different or separate or, um, you know, we can't expect them to do what quote unquote uh, typical children do or the gen ed students or non-disabled peers. Um, and the, the problem with that way of thinking is this statement really is specific to say that the child needs to be involved in and make progress in 
but it does not say that they have to be held to the exact same standard um, and that we don't then make, you know, accommodations or modifications in order to provide access to that curriculum. It simply means that any student, regardless of their disability, regardless of the significance of that disability, they have the right to be with their peers um, in that setting, um, you know, being exposed to grade level content. And we'll talk more here in a minute, but there's oftentimes this sort of uh, phrase that goes along with that, which is to the maximum extent appropriate, right? So what, and then it's, the question is, what does that mean? What, what is the maximum extent appropriate? Um, and I'll tell you that in my experience and, and what I believe is the maximum extent appropriate is not the maximum extent convenient, which I think is oftentimes what can happen in schools is that um, they sort of um, equate uh, appropriateness for convenience. Oh, well, it's, you know, we can't work that into our schedule. We can't figure out how to schedule the student to be in the gen ed setting. Well, somebody's got to figure it out, right? That's not a, a, a good enough reason to, to exclude them from that participation. So another idea just to keep in mind that this is part of why we're talking about inclusion and why it's so important because um, there's this legal aspect of it, right? And, and more so than um, the legal aspect, of course, we just know that it's the right thing to do, that these students, they don't need to be excluded or isolated um, simply because of the presence of their disability. That doesn't mean we're going to be treating them the same. Uh, we're certainly going to be making whatever adjustments are needed to increase their access, but we're not going to cut off their access. So this is a way that I frame my own thinking uh, through this topic. When we're thinking about inclusion and we're wanting to improve student outcomes through inclusion, um, these are sort of the, the, the broad categories that come to mind, right? I just touched on some legislation pieces there with the, um, the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, and then that Dear Colleague letter that I was referring to. That's sort of the legislative piece about why do we have inclusion um, and you know, why are we doing it? Okay, that's fine, that's one piece. And that's important, it is. But there's other things uh, happening as well. So there's research. And I'll, you'll see here in a minute, I'll, we'll go through some of the research. Um, and of course, I know that it's easy to say, well, you can find research about anything, right? To prove anything. I can find a research study that says the sky is purple or, you know, or green or whatever. Um, but truly, by and large, there's a growing body of research that supports um, the significantly improved outcomes for students with disabilities when they are included. Um, and not just students with disabilities, but their non-disabled peers as well are oftentimes, um, they receive benefits from that inclusion, participating in that in inclusive experience as well. So there's that piece that we think about when we're looking at inclusion and improving outcomes. There's mindset, which you'll see is sort of this, there's a little warning sign here um, we'll come back to that one in a minute. And then there's experience, truly the lived experience of the students, the teachers, the parents, the administrators, anyone who's involved in this idea of inclusion and implementing inclusion, what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis, um, and then see, you know, seeing the benefits that come out of it. Are there going to be times where the benefits are lacking or uh, something has gone awry and, it, and something goes crazy for a while or this particular way that we set this up, it ends up not being, you know, the, the best thing for that student. Absolutely. It's a trial and error kind of thing in many ways. Um, there is absolutely no way 
to ensure that there's there's going to be a, a perfect um, inclusive experience for anyone. However, uh, on the whole, when we're looking at the experience of students, um, they do have improved outcomes and these benefits from being in the inclusive experience. So we're considering the legislation, we're considering the research, which is sort of that more academic side, right? The factual side um, that's a little more a little more elusive in terms of, well, that's not my personal experience. That's just what the research says, right? And then there's the experience side. What are students truly um, living on a day-to-day -day basis? And then the mindset, that's what I'm coming back to now. Having that mindset of, one, that students are, um, they have the right to be exposed to gen ed content and curriculum. They have the right to participate in things with their gen ed peers. Um, all of this, you know, that it is doable uh, that it's not some kind of impossible task that's being placed on us. Um, that mindset is really, one, it's it's the thing that can sort of, um, what do I want to say? It's the thing that can sort of throw everything off track, right? If, if you've got someone with a mindset that's not aligned to the benefits of inclusion, that can be really difficult to overcome. But at the same time, that is really the only thing in these four categories that we're looking at that we have the most control over, right? I can't control legislation. I can't control research. I can't control anyone else's experience of what has happened to them when they've participated in inclusion. Um, but I can control my mindset and I can control, um, you know, sort of how I speak to that and, and uh, sharing, you know, what I know about inclusion and the benefits for students and things like that. And then that often spreads um, when people see how that works out, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, then mindsets can change. So that's sort of why I put that that little warning there. Um, there's good and bad, right, to, to both of that. So, and we'll see. We'll talk more about this as we go along here. Just wanted to set that up as sort of a, a framework for the rest of, of what I'll talk about here. Like I mentioned, just super briefly um, about the Dear Colleague letter and then the Every Student Succeeds Act. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because it's not the um, most pressing issue, I would say, for most teachers and parents, although it certainly is important. But this is, again, sort of the legislative piece of where this idea of inclusion comes from, why we're trying to increase um, access for students with disabilities, because we want in outcomes to be improved. These check marks over to the left, and these are some sort of broad ideas that are shared between the Every Student Succeeds Act and the Dear Colleague Letter, and even into uh, getting into the research as well, what um, some of these ideas that are required in order for this to happen. Key among them is the shared responsibility piece. Now, typically when I talk about shared responsibility, I'm presenting to teachers and I'll say, listen, this is where you know special ed teachers and gen ed teachers and even administrators then, they all need to come together and share the responsibility of figuring out how are we going to increase access to the general education curriculum and setting and things like that for uh, for our students with disabilities. It's not just um, it's not just a, a world now where it's special ed teachers do special ed things with special ed students and then gen ed teachers do gen ed things with gen ed students. Um, we really are trying to blend it um, so that everyone can benefit. And in blending, then. Um, those responsibilities come, you know, merge together as well. So that's a key, key piece of what we talk about um, as well is, is trying to find ways to share that responsibility. And of course, parents play a role in that as well, right? That we need to make sure our parents stay informed about what we're doing, how we're doing it, um, and all of that. So it really is, we're trying to get rid of those silos 
um, and come together as a group to do what's best for all our students. The high expectations piece, uh, I put that here just to note that yes, we are focusing on high expectations, having high expectations for all students, regardless of their level of disability, but having high expectations doesn't mean having unreasonable expectations. And we'll talk more about that later. Meaningful access is super, super important. Uh, we'll talk about that more in detail here in just a minute as well, but that's an idea that's supported here by this legislation. And then the idea of having grade level standards. So, um, of course, for the majority of students, they are working towards grade level academic standards, right? In Indiana, it's the Indiana Academic Standards. For the population of students who have been identified with a, a moderate or significant cognitive disability, those are typically the students who are working on alternate academic standards, which are called content connectors, and we'll talk more about that later as well. But um, regardless, the importance is that we find a way to make uh, those standards, whether they're the Indiana academic standards or the alternate standards, we need to find a way to make them accessible um, at the grade level. So if you have a, an eighth grade student, we want to find ways to make the eighth grade standards accessible to them, even if they're currently um, functioning at a level that's much lower than eighth grade. We're still going to look for ways to make that content accessible. Um, and that's a big job. There's a lot that goes into that. And that's another one of those things we can never uh, perfect it, right? But there's always uh, things we can try. And that's a lot of what Project Success does is spend time uh, working on how to make those standards accessible. Let's keep going. So I talked about meaningful access and how we would we would talk more about it. And here's um, that quote again that we looked at earlier. Um, it's not just enough, though, to say, uh, here's here's this student with a disability and we're going to put them in the gen ed classroom. And then we pat ourselves on the back and say, aha, we have accomplished inclusion. Right. I think there was a time where that is what inclusion meant. If we get the students with, that have disabilities in the classroom, in the gen ed classroom, then we said uh, they're included. We've done it. Um, and it's, that is obviously a part. Um, but there's also now this idea of um, going beyond just physically accessing the general education environment and things like that, and now looking at intellectual access. So when we're talking about inclusion, we don't mean take your child with a disability, put them in the gen ed classroom, let them soak up what's going on, and then, then we're happy with that, right? And that that was inclusion. Um, we don't know that uh, the content and the curriculum that was being discussed in that class was accessible to them, right? We need to find ways to make it intellectually accessible, um, whether that's breaking it down, whether that's utilizing concepts of universal design for learning, which is having multiple ways of, of interacting with the information that, that students are learning, we've got to find ways to do it, right? And so then when we combine those two things, when we get the students in the gen ed setting as much as possible physically, and we uh, work on that intellectual access piece, that's when we really have sort of that, that big, pretty colorful idea of inclusion going on. I will say too, that um, to the point where we are emphasizing inclusion and its benefits and things like that, there is such a thing as, you know, we, we're still thinking about having a continuum of services for students with disabilities. So it's not a binary choice where it's either you're in a self-contained setting with these, you know, uh, a special ed teacher who's dedicated to you, or you're in the gen ed setting, and maybe you get support, maybe you don't, 
Um, but there is something that's in the middle as well, right? So I don't want you to think that inclusion just means they have to be in the gen ed setting 100% of the time. It may be quite appropriate for them to be um, in separate settings at times, depending on student need, and, and that's okay too. So we're not going for any extreme one way or the other. Um, we are, but we are looking at, you know, what's best for students um, in the long run across the board. So this is just one example of what it might look like to have meaningful access to grade level curriculum. It, I, I could come up with probably limitless ways of, of saying, you know, here's a, a fifth grade assignment and what it might look like for a, a non-disabled peer and then what we might do to modify it. Um, but this is just one example of what it might look like. So when we are working with teachers to think about how they can provide this access to the grade level curriculum, this is what uh, this is sort of how we're we're guiding them. Think about a lesson that you'll be teaching, and what the main um, expectations are that you have for them, or the main skills or or content or whatever it is that they really need to master from that lesson. The big the big deals, right? The big ideas from that lesson. So that's what um, in this chart. That's what's over on the left side. Um, in this particular example, it's you know they're, the the class is working on writing an essay or a research paper or, or something similar to that, okay? So then those skills that the teachers identified as being the most important are, you know, the student needs to learn how to select a topic, identify similarities and differences. Um, oftentimes the example I give here is maybe the topic is dolphins and now they're gonna be um, comparing and contrasting with porpoises or something like that, right? They're identifying similarities and differences. That's a big deal, big, big idea here that we wanna do in this, in this assignment. Paraphrasing resources, huge, right? In researching or reading and learning, um, you can't just write what someone else has written. You have to take those ideas and make them your own. So paraphrasing resources is a big deal here. Then being able to organize the details that you find into a cohesive paper or, or presentation of some kind, and then sharing that with the group. Those are the main things that that teacher wants the, the class to get out of that assignment. So now when we think about a student um, with a disability, and perhaps this example is um, a student with a more significant disability, but the concept is the same. We're going to slide over for each of those main um, expectations that have been identified. We're going to slide over and say, okay, what might this look like that will bring each of these down to the level of where this particular student is working while still um, getting at the heart of what's the point of that expectation, right? So selecting a topic we still want a student to be able to participate in that, but maybe it's that we provide them a set number of options to choose from rather than just picking, you know, pulling from the sky anything that comes to mind. Maybe we structure their options. It could even be that we put a couple of pictures in front of the student and whichever picture they gravitate toward is their indication of their selection, right? They've selected a topic. And so that's how they're participating in that. Of course, there are many other ways that you could uh, modify this. That's why I'm I point out here that these are just potential, right? These are just ideas. And you can see, I, I don't wanna spend a ton of time going through the rest of these steps, but you can see how at each step along the way, um, the teacher or, or whoever is working with a student can slide over and say, okay, how will I still get the student to work on similarities and differences at a level that's appropriate for them? Um, so maybe it's just being able to demonstrate the understanding of same and different. I can, I can demonstrate to you I understand that this means same and this means different. 
Um, as far as paraphrasing resources, I know I just said I'm not going to go through it all, but it, I feel like it's important to, to point out a couple more of these because they might give you ideas for how you might work with your own child um, at home and modifying certain expectations. Um, so paraphrasing resources, that's a big cognitively complex thing to do, right? So a, a potential modification could be someone reads some sentences aloud to the student and then that student sort of says back, you know, what they what they took from that or what their main thing is that they want to make sure is being said. So they're paraphrasing it back from something that's read aloud from someone else. And then going down to number four, rather than independently organizing all this information into a, some kind of cohesive paper, maybe it's that they, the student is dictating these sentences. They say that, you know, this is what I want to say. And an adult or a peer support or someone uh, copies those sentences down, either types them out or writes them out. And then if you want your student or your child to be, to have an active role in sort of the, uh, the creation of this work product, you could, you could have them copy the sentences, type them out on their own, handwrite them out on their own. Maybe they find a picture uh, that correlates with the sentence that they've chosen and that's their way of writing or creating or, or uh, generating a work product, right? The point is, and please hear me say, <laughs> I am not recommending any student uh, just copy sentences, right? There, there's little educational value in that. But the point is, if you want them participating in that work creation, that's how they could be doing that. And then, of course, if, uh, if reading aloud the paper to the class isn't making a lot of sense, maybe they can do it a different way. Maybe they can find pictures online that they pull together in a collage format that, that presents the main ideas of their paper and so forth. I think you, you get the idea. What I always coach teachers on here um, and, and would encourage any parents as well to think through any expectations that you might have for a non-disabled peer, a student with a, or a child without a disability, then think through what that might, what that modification might look like then for, for a particular student with particular needs. Um, it just provides, this chart provides a structure for thinking through that as well, which I think is helpful. That's enough about that. This quote um, is just sort of to make the point again that um, gen ed is important. The gen ed setting is important. The classroom is important. Um, and what they're saying here in from pulling from this uh, journal article is that in order to comply with the legalities of least restrictive environment, that the, the individuals who are participating on these IEP teams, they need to consider the gen ed classroom as the default educational placement. So that is not to say Let's start everyone in the gen ed classroom, regardless of what we know about them, and then see what happens and make adjustments accordingly. But what it does mean is when you're in these IEP meetings, having these conversations to start from a place of, listen, this is a student who has the right to, to um, experience everything that all other students are experiencing. And so that's where we're going to start and then think about now, in this case, you know, this student's disability perhaps causes them to X, Y, Z, require a certain thing, right, or, or whatever. Okay, then we, we address that in that way. But we don't go to the point of, um, I'm looking at, you know, the, the child's uh, evaluation report says they have X, Y, Z disability. That means we're going to put them in this program or this uh, classroom or this whatever. I mean, maybe they go in that program or classroom, but maybe they don't, right? We don't want there to be such this, um, if this, then this, 
kind of situation. We really want to start with, we need to make sure they get as much of the gen ed experience as possible and then address any sort of um, uh, outlying situations or circumstances accordingly. Hopefully I've made that point clear. If any of you have questions or if I'm not being clear about um, things that I'm saying, please feel free to, to put them in the question box um, because I wanna make sure that, that people have the, the chance to do that. I know sometimes I can get on a roll um, and I wanna make sure everyone's on the same page with me. So that was just some about the, the legal piece. Remember what those four boxes I was showing you earlier. Now I wanted to point out just a couple of things about the research. On the left side, you can see here for students with disabilities, there's research that proves this idea of inclusion. Um, there's increase in achievement when students are included more in a gen ed setting, and there's improved social skills. I mean, if you think about it, students will mimic what they're surrounded by, right? And so if they're surrounded by gen ed peers, that's the behavior they're looking at and that they will um, hopefully be picking up on and, and intuiting and learning and, and wanting to model themselves. If they are in a separate setting where they are surrounded by other peers who are not demonstrating the social skills that you would hope that, that they would demonstrate, then that's what they're, they're picking up on and, and soaking up, right? So this idea of having students included, uh, there is research, of course, that shows improved social skills in that way. Now on the right side, we're looking at the non-disabled peers. There is benefit uh, from participating in the inclusive experience for them as well. There's research that shows they develop empathy and advocacy skills, right? They're, they're empathetic towards their, their peers and as well as uh, learning how to advocate for people who may need support in advocating, which I think is so important um, in this world <laughs> that we live in, um, that our students, regardless of whether they have a disability or not, are learning these sort of, um, I guess we might call them soft skills, uh, but the idea of empathy and advocacy, I just think is so important. And then um, probably one of the more um, uh, bombshell uh, points that I can make with research for teachers is to show that there is no negative effect on academic performance of students in the, in the inclusive classroom, uh, regardless of the presence of a disability, right? So sometimes I think teachers are worried about, oh, if I have to spend time with this student, you know, remediating this or modifying this or whatever, my, these other students will suffer or they'll fall behind or they won't get what they need. And while that may be true in individual situations in a, you know, at a particular moment in time kind of thing, um, broadly speaking, when we look at the research and take that emotional element out of it and just look at the facts, there is no negative uh, effect on academic performance for, for any student participating in an inclusive uh, experience. So I think that's really important to point out. This is just a, a couple of points to, to make about, again, you know, sort of drawing out the effects of inclusion. So um, the, again, what I mentioned about there's increased achievement and this, you'll see this is speaking specifically to students with significant cognitive disabilities. I think many times it's easier to, you know, sort of accept this idea. Well, sure, most students could benefit from being um, in an inclusive experience, but not students with really significant complex needs. That doesn't make sense, right? That, that still needs to be sort of a separate thing going on. Even for her students with the most significant needs, there are um, positive correlations with their achievement when they're included. 
Um, I mentioned already this idea of making uh, progress on social goals and then the empathy and advocacy. So really it's just, I'm pointing out these specific comments from the research studies here. All right, so we talked about legislation. We talked about research. Let's keep going here. Mindset. So there are a few ideas that are very similar and all sort of come together when we think about mindset and what it means when we're looking at inclusion and improving outcomes for students with disabilities. There's this idea of presumed competence, truly exactly what it means, which is presuming, assuming that a student is competent, that there's ability and capability within that student, um, regardless of what a disability, you know, how a disability may be impacting the demonstration of that competence or that ability. Um, we know that it's in there somewhere. Um, the least dangerous assumption then is sort of operating under this presumption of um, presuming competence. So when you're presuming competence in students, you're going to assume that they have an ability. And so the decisions that you make for them, educationally speaking, you want them to have um, an outcome that is least harmful, least dangerous, least impactful on them, negatively speaking, for their uh, independent functioning later in life. And we'll talk more about this in a second. I have a slide that I think explains that a little bit better. High expectations we've already talked about. It doesn't mean unreasonable expectations, but it does mean um, not being okay with sort of status quo, meh, as long as they're, as long as they're safe, I'm good, right? Well, we, we, would, we can expect more from our students, from our children, um, not unreasonably so, but I think that there is room for, for growth in that area. And then increasing access, um, that is a huge element of um, a mindset is, is having this mindset that it's important to increase access, whether it's physical access, intellectual access, access to peers, access to experiences and, and uh, you know, I don't know, field trips and just all the things, right? We wanna make sure that we're, we're having increased access on our minds. Ashley, I, I did have a question. Well, actually a couple now. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm seeing them pop up here. Yes, uh, the first one is, there's a question about the PowerPoint handouts. When you received your reminder email, either yesterday or today, I'm not sure what day it goes out, that always includes the PowerPoint handout. So the very first page would be the instruction page on joining. And then if you scroll beyond that, the handouts will be there. And so I'm, I'm since you've joined us, I'm assuming you've gotten that, uh, that link with those handouts. If for some reason you didn't or you can't find it, please contact insource at insource.org and ask about getting, getting that handout if you would. Okay, and then um, there's a question. Do you have any references for the research slide about students with and without disabilities being negatively impacted? Yeah, so and so by references, I'm assuming Regina that you mean specific research studies that could be looked at and, and for you to look into more or read more about. Um, I can Yes, I can absolutely kind of pull some of that together. Um, I cannot do it right now off the top of my head, but yes, I can, I can sort of pull some of that together to, to offer you to explore further. And also, if I might add, Sandy Cole um, did the a presentation for us a couple of weeks ago and talked about this, the Indiana University study on this very same topic. And she 
had the, the research information that showed, um, you know, that there was no negative impact either way. And so yeah. um, that would be a great webinar to go back and, and to review as well, but okay. Yes, that was super exciting to see that because we've known that for a while now, just in sort of scattered different research studies and, and so forth, but uh, to see it come out of our own state of Indiana that, uh, that that's the case, you know, the achievement isn't impacted is pretty cool. So yes, I can um, pull that together and we'll work on uh, getting that to anyone who might need it. Great question. Thank you. And Ashley, you will be sharing your um, email address at the end of the presentation. So yes, and contact you uh, directly if need be. Yes, let's do that. Yes, Regina and anyone else who might want that if you wouldn't mind emailing me. Uh, that way I can make sure to send it directly to you. I think that's a good idea. Yes. My, and I know I have that that email address, I think at the end of the, the slides here. Perfect. So this is just another way, I'm gonna minimize this here for a minute. Oh, I'll probably never get them back now. Uh, another way to think about these ideas that I was just starting to, to touch on. So the idea of presuming competence means that when we're not sure what students can learn, we're going to assume that they can learn, that they have the ability to learn, and that it's just sort of this uh, journey that we're gonna go on to figure out how do we make that happen? In what ways do we increase access or make things accessible or adjust the curriculum or modify expectations or whatever it might be? Uh, we're not just gonna shut it off from the beginning and say, because I see this disability, uh, I know that there's only X capacity for learning. And beyond that, not even gonna try, right? That's not what we're doing here at all. We're, we're gonna assume that there's capability and competence and then uh, work to find ways to really bring that out um, and let, let students be able to, uh, why can't I find the word? Let students be able to truly uh, participate in experience and then demonstrate what they know, right? So that's just sort of another way of thinking through it. And when we are coming from a place of presuming competence, we influence so many things. And these are points that we try to make with teachers as well. Um, but I think it's certainly um, something that's, that is relevant to parents too. When you're presuming competence in your child or in your student, it's going to influence how actively you engage them. If you assume that they can understand more than they let on, right, or more than you're able to uh, intuit from them, then you're going to engage with them more often and more actively. Um, and then those students are going to be more engaged in their education as well. Whether we can see that on the outside or not, um, that is oftentimes what is happening, right? That, that when we're presuming competence, we um, are willing to put more complex material in front of them that's further down here on the slide and so there, there can be more so, sort of thought processing going on even than what we see um, how it also is, is influencing how often we talk to the student what kind of tone we use it's it's easy to slip into i don't want to say baby talk but sometimes baby-ish talk right um, but if we're presuming that there's competence in there that we presume you know the student who is 14 years old or 16 years old or or whatever, just because they may lack some of the uh, traditional ways of communicating or whatever, that doesn't mean we need to talk to them as if they are uh, a, a small, small child who has similar communication abilities, right? So we're still gonna, uh, we're gonna use tone um, with these students that, that is appropriate for their, for their age. It influences how we speak about the student to other people. 
Um, we really value them as individuals and we don't sort of demean or diminish them based on the, um, the characteristics that they, that they display. And then that last one on there is the one that really I think is, is so important when we're thinking about education in general is when we presume competence in a student, we're influencing how much effort we're willing to put forth and how much patience we're willing to have when we run into challenges because goodness knows there's no shortage of challenges when working with students with disabilities and the, the, the willingness to put forth the effort and the uh, willingness to sort of extend patience to get through those challenges has exponential uh, effect on students, right? They can't do a lot of this for themselves. They can't generate the content for themselves. They, re they rely on, you know, teachers and parents to uh, put that information in front of them. And so if we can work through that and be willing to put forth more effort and have more patience when things go crazy, um, that content gets in front of them and those experiences get put out there and then those students are benefiting just, just unbelievably so. So that's huge, I think. That's a huge piece of why we, we start from a place of presuming competence. Some assumptions um, that we make that go along with this idea, this is gonna lead into um, what I mentioned a second ago about the least dangerous assumption. These are things that people have believed, many people, some people have believed for, for a while. And we're finding now through research, through experience and so forth, that these are flawed assumptions. And so this slide is really to point out those assumptions and then um, we're gonna think about how we can kind of flip them on their head. So this idea that intelligence is something that can be reliably measured, it's just not true. It can be measured, but one, is it reliable? And two, we go back to the idea of what is what does it mean to be intelligent, right? Um, I'm sure many of you have heard of this, you know, uh, Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, right? Intelligence isn't just the traditional way we think of reading and writing and doing your math and all this kind of a thing. So the idea that we can then reliably measure these things is um, has been demonstrated to be false. That is one of the things that I could go off on a, quite a long tangent about the idea of IQ tests and what they truly measure and, and, and all of that. But suffice it to say, we know that it's not necessarily a reliable measurement. That's not to say it's not an important piece of information. It certainly is. It can tell you um, something about that student, um, but it's by no means something that I would want to make all of my decisions based on. Moving on from that then, and now of course I'm speaking pretty specifically about students with intellectual disabilities here, but it really um, applies to any sort of variation of that when we're thinking about students with other disabilities. There's this idea that students with intellectual disabilities, they can't learn genetic content. That's why they have a disability, right? Like that's what that means. They have this intellectual disability, therefore they are not able to learn this content. So there's no benefit of being in gen ed if they can't learn the content. All of that is false, <laughs> all of it's false. Um, we know that students with intellectual disabilities can learn gen ed content. They can benefit from being in gen ed uh, settings, in gen ed classes. So those assumptions we have to, to put out the window. And then lastly, I sort of referred to this earlier on, there's this, uh, there was and is still sometimes this idea that either a student can be in gen ed or they can get their needs met, perhaps in a self-contained setting or something like that. But it's an either or situation, it's one or the other. They can't be in gen ed and get their needs met, that's preposterous. Well, that's, that's false, right? There's, again, what I referenced earlier, this idea of continuum of services and this idea of having accommodations and modifications and just all the things 
that will that makes us a much richer um, truly a continuum right it isn't an either or situation so these are all things we have to say nope this isn't how we're operating anymore these these assumptions have flaws to them um, and we're going to move on from that and kind of flip them flip them on their head so here is what I was talking about earlier this is really the best way that I can um, explain the idea of least dangerous assumption so start by thinking there's two scenarios we're going to think about here the first one is what if we assume students can learn regardless of their disability and the significance of their disability we assume they can learn so we give them every opportunity to learn and then it turns out they can't learn and I, I always reference here at this point I say you know maybe there's this magical brain scanning technology right that comes out and and we are really truly able to know if a student is learning or not learning right because we can't currently uh, unzip their little heads and look inside and see if they're learning or not um, in many cases so what if we start off by assuming they can learn give them all these opportunities but then this magical brain scanning technology comes out and it's confirmed no they they really couldn't learn what happens then for that student not not much right i mean they're still going to be pretty much in the same place they would have been had we not provided those opportunities to them now contrast that with if we start from a place of assuming that students cannot learn because we see, ah, oh, this, this uh, significant cognitive disability, right? I know what that means. That means the student can't learn. So I'm not gonna go out of my way to give them every opportunity. I'm not gonna put them in gen ed. I'm not gonna try to give them these experiences. I'm not gonna work on breaking down curriculum to make it accessible. But then the magical brain scanning technology finds that that student can learn. What then? What is the impact on that student then? And that, of course, is just, I mean, that's just heartbreaking to me. Every time I have to, to, to explain that, to say that out loud, that's heartbreaking to me. For me as an educator to assume, to make an assumption that that student cannot learn because this is what I see on the outside, you can't learn. So I'm not going to give you the things that would allow you to learn. And then if you come to find out that they could have, could have learned and could have benefited from those things, it's just the negative impact that that would have on that student is just, it's just, I can't, I cannot, I can't. So this is the best way I can think of to explain the least dangerous assumption. When we're faced with that choice, with that uh, having to make a decision on, well, what are we gonna do for this student educationally? And if you're faced with the choice of this or this, um, we're always gonna err on the side of what's least dangerous for that student in the long run, or if this magical brain scanning technology really does appear, right? That they'll, that they'll be able to uh, function as independently as possible and have had all the opportunities that they uh, require or deserve. Um, yeah, so in thinking through that, then the least dangerous assumption is to have high expectations for all students. That is what will allow um, us to sort of be, be guided through that idea of the least dangerous assumption. Ashley, I did have a question posted, and I think it was not the previous slide, but the one before that. It said, is the okay. book source posted just for educators or for parents too? Oh, great question. I'm so glad you asked that. So this book, uh, it's more than just being in, it is more of a, um, like an educator focus, I would say. It's, I, I believe there are some college courses that use it as like a textbook or some kind of supplemental resource. But it's fantastic information as far as truly what, you know, what the title says here, creating authentic inclusion for students with uh, complex support needs. So it's not 
I wouldn't call it a, a parent resource by any means. It's, I don't think it's targeted at that demographic, but it's got great information in it. So I don't know if that helps. Anyone who'd be looking to, to, to look into that more or, or uh, want to know more about it, I may have a copy I could even lend out. I don't know. So again, I would email me <laughs> if, the, if you have more interest in that book. Um, I can find a way to uh, figure out how you can access that and see if it might be useful to you. I just remembered I minimized all my little guys down here. I did have someone post, I have used that book in three of my oh, college courses. There you go. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's good information for that, especially for um, teach anyone who's working with the students who do have those more complex needs, because that's often sort of the forgotten, that's, that's just a, a pod of forgotten or, or little uh, thought of students, right? Because everyone's so focused on the majority, which, which I understand, but at the same time, um, this is a really good book that focuses on, on those students in particular. So, okay. all right. Okay. To move forward. Yes. Okay. So given all of that, then what's the goal? We were talking about presuming competence operating under the least dangerous assumption, having high expectations, and of course, then trying to increase access. What's the goal with all of this? So, and this is something I referenced earlier. It's not necessarily for all students with disabilities to spend the entire school day in a gen ed classroom. That may not be appropriate. However, given that gen ed classrooms are the best place, the best context for accessing those experiences in curriculum, right? It, it, it's the most natural to just be in a gen ed classroom and get the gen ed experience and, and hear the gen ed lessons. Um, when we're thinking about, again, that idea of the maximum degree appropriate, it, it needs to involve at least some time in a gen ed classroom for all students. It's, it's impossible to recreate gen ed experiences and gen ed lessons and gen ed all the things in a self-contained setting. That just, it, it doesn't work, right? So um, to the maximum extent appropriate and things like that, we do need to be trying to get it, uh, those experiences to happen in, in that natural of a setting. Again, with the caveat of not necessarily for everyone to be in 100% of the time, all the time, because we're, we're not pushing it to the extent that, you know, now it's, it's counterproductive. And you can see there, um, those statements come from um, some of that, those, those researchers there. And I've provided the link down there as well. So this is, um, this is something we were talking about a, a little bit before the webinar even started. This idea of we're not going for perfection. It's not an, an either or, it's not a binary. It's not, you're either terrible and failing your children, or you have this 100% perfect, you know, inclusive experience. What we're looking for is progress, one step forward at a time, not perfection. And so this graphic here really demonstrates, uh, or, or sort of, it, it gives a visual uh, representation of what I've been saying, which is having high expectations doesn't mean having unreasonable expectations. The difference is we make room for students to, to make growth when we raise our expectations. If we would keep our sort of ceiling down at that low expectation mark, no, you know, there's, there's also a saying, no one rises to low expectations. I mean, why would you? There's, that's just not something that happens. So when we raise our expectations, even if we know this student will never, ever, ever get there, 
And really, how could we know? But we know, we feel like we know, right? They'll never get there. Fine. But what we've done is make room. That's what that purple arrow is. We've made all this room now for students to expand to the degree that they're able, right, um, to grow and learn and, and improve in that way. So that is really, uh, in a nutshell, what we're talking about when we want to look at inclusive experiences and raise our expectations for students. Um, we're not holding them to unreasonable standards. We're just trying to make room for them to develop and grow into the best um, version of themselves. I'm not going to spend a, a ton of time on this, but it is it would be something uh, for you guys to look back at later. There's a slide talking about what it might look like to have high expectations more academically speaking. What does it look like in practice? And then there's another one about just sort of how we interact with students socially. Um, what is how would we be demonstrating high expectations? So on the left side of both of those slides are, are elements of reflecting high expectations. And then, you know, in case it's not obvious enough, we have an X here. Please do not do these things that reflect low expectations for our students. The one thing I will point out on this slide is the idea of providing more wait time. I know at least for teachers, it is drilled into them. Wait time, wait time, wait time. Wait time is good for students, especially for students with disabilities. They need wait time to process, you know, the question that you've asked them or think through their answer and things like that. But there's a couple of things I'll say about that. One, you have to wait until it's almost uncomfortable before you jump into prompt or, you know, change the subject or, or move on or whatever. Because as soon as, especially for our students with, you know, processing challenges or communication challenges, as soon as you ask the question, wait a, a little bit, and then think, oh, you know, they, they must not have understood what I said, or let me rephrase it, or whatever, you restart that processing process all over again. So they may have been halfway to an answer, and now they have to go back to the beginning and rethink through all of that again. So, and you'll learn, um, you know, depending on your child or your student, what is an appropriate amount of time to wait. Sometimes it's 30, 45, 60, plus seconds, right, which can feel like an eternity when you're just sitting there waiting for an answer, but sometimes that's what students need. So um, that's one thing I'll say is even if you think you're providing wait time, try providing more wait time <laughs> and see what happens. And then the other thing I'll say about that is just um, the importance of providing wait time as far as how that reflects high expectations is because that's um, a saying to that child or that student, I know that you have something to say. I value what it is that you want to say or what you want to uh, communicate to me. And I'm going to give you time to do that, right? Um, this is about you. I want to know what's going on in your mind, what you're thinking about. It's not about me sticking to my schedule. Well, sorry, got to move on. Next question, bup, 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 you know, which is so easy to do um, in education and just in life, right? We got to stick to our schedule. We got to move on to the next thing. But when we're providing that wait time um, for our students, regardless of disability, um, that indicates to them that you believe they have something of value to contribute. And I think that's really important. Okay. Those are the um, high expectations for the more social emotional teams. You guys can go back and look at that at your leisure. So now we're in the last box. We talked about legislation, talked about research, talked about mindset. And now we're just talking about the experience. And so here, this uh, graphic is meant to sort of demonstrate why why are we harping on this idea of access, of increasing access for students with disabilities? And it's because once students are, are able to experience that access, then they're participating in what's going on around them. 
and then that's what leads to learning, right? But the learning won't come until we start at that point of access and making sure that we've provided access so that they can participate, so that they can learn from what they're participating in. It's a process, right? But it starts with that access. This slide is so critical for, for students with the most significant disabilities, really complex needs. This idea of exposure versus mastery, this, um, what we're referring to here is um, content, right? Standard, grade level standards, the curriculum that's going on in school. When we're thinking about students with significant cognitive disabilities, we, they still have the right to be exposed to their grade level gen ed content, they do. However, what we're, what we're saying is um, that we believe they can sort of participate, right? Have access and participate in it, be with it, but we're not necessarily expecting them to master that. That might not be appropriate. We're balancing the idea of exposing them to grade level content with the idea of we're still gonna work on mastery of skills that are at their level or near their ability level. So it's not, again, as with so many things I've been mentioning, it's not one or the other. We're not only working on mastering skills at their level, whatever that might be, letter identification, you know, tying your shoe, um, toileting, which of course is critical. Um, all of these things are important skills, so I don't mean to make light of them. However, um, that's not where we're stopping, right? We're going to broaden it out, which is why that circle sort of uh, expands. And we're also going to bring in that exposure piece where students can be exposed to grade level content. It might not be in the same way uh, that, that gen ed peers are experiencing the content. We might break it down or only focus on one piece of it or, you know, modify the expectation or whatever, but we're still bringing in that, that content for them to, to uh, benefit from or, or be exposed to. The asterisk is there because this idea really is important that it's applied only to students with the most significant disabilities, which I know is really hard because at this point with the way things are set up with standardized testing, accountability, and all the things, which I will not open that can of worms. Um, students, on, by and large, are still expected to master grade level standards. This, is, this idea of exposure versus mastery is, is only applicable to students with the most significant disabilities. And I can answer uh, questions about that later if, if that's not clear, but if the idea is still very important, right? That we're not uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater one way or the other, we're bringing in both. We wanna focus on mastery of skills while also bring in uh, the exposure piece. Uh, okay, I'm gonna see how quickly I can talk about this slide. It's, a, it's, so, it's an important example of how, when we raise our expectations, kids surprise us. So this is an example of students with disabilities in Kansas. There was a time when they were not included in their state assessment, and then there, and that was around in 2000. You can see those darker pink red bars. And then they started being included in the state assessment. That's 2003 in those lighter pink bars. And what, the, what we're looking at here is a percentage of proficiency in reading and math. So the percentage of students who were proficient in reading in 2000, 26% of students with disabilities were proficient in reading in 2000. Then the switch came, they were expected to participate in the state assessment. And in 2003, the percentage of students with disabilities who was, were proficient in reading jumped to 50. Now this is some 
magical assessment if it's doubled uh, the number of students who are proficient in reading. No, of course it's not the assessment, right? The, uh, what has happened here though is teachers thought, oh, well, these students are gonna be held accountable to the content of the assessment. I better make sure I'm teaching them what's on the assessment. And students themselves, oh, I'm gonna be held accountable you know, for what's on this assessment. I better pay attention to what's going on around me. And so lo and behold, right, these students, um, they, they surprised us, they proved us wrong. They, there was a large well of capability in many of those students that just hadn't been tapped because the expectations were low. I am not saying that I think every single student should, should participate in a state assessment uh, because it is uh, gonna improve their proficiency. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think this is just a snapshot that shows when teachers, adults really, when adults have higher expectations, Again, thinking back to that graphic of the purple arrow, that makes room for those students to demonstrate growth and, and progress. Okay, that's enough. So we've been talking about Sandy um, and her research um, about uh, the achievement of students who are in inclusive settings and things like that. So um, there is a slide in here that has the link down there at the bottom to uh, sort of the story that goes along with that about her research that she's done there. So you can access that um, to learn more about that. This is just wrapping up, right? These are all the areas that we've looked at and they each play a piece in improving outcomes for students. Again, understanding that us as individuals, the main thing that we have control over is our mindset. So then going back to those purple slides, thinking about presuming competence and having high expectations and um, operating under the least dangerous assumption and things like that. That's really where individuals can have an impact in improving outcomes for students with disabilities. Um, this is a different way of looking through it. So federal and state, and then even down into the district, again, individuals, we can't do much about that. It is what it is. But then for, this is more specific to teachers, I would say, but that the district building an individual level, those arrows start going both ways, right? So sometimes the changes come from at the district level and filter down to building an individual. Sometimes it, all it takes is one really passionate individual, an individual teacher, or even an individual parent who is um, championing these students and having these high expectations. And then that can flow up, right? Up, flow up from that individual through the building to the district. And that's where changes can, can start to be made. So, we're kind of stuck where we are right now as far as what's federally happening in, in the state, but um, those bottom three, that's where we can kind of impact what's going on around us. There again is the legislation and research. That's sort of where that piece fits in, up in the, the top. But then the mindset and experience is really where it comes down more locally and the things that we have more influence over. This is one of my favorites. So it's so easy to talk through a lot of this and say, well, when we raise, you know, when we have high expectations and we include students, it's going to be great. Look, our expectations are everything's going to go great and, it's, you know, it, outcomes are going to improve. But in reality, it's going to be wild and crazy and messy. Mistakes are going to be made. Um, but what I point out on this slide is regardless of all that crazy stuff that happens in the middle, that arrow ends up higher than it was where it started, right? So. Yes, it will be messy and crazy, but for students and their outcomes and, and um, the impact that it has on them, it ends up in a better place, even if it doesn't go perfectly. And so even in the middle of it, if you feel like this is crazy, um, just keep looking for the end of that arrow, right, to be, to be up there. So 
long story short, and it really was quite a long story, and bless you all for hanging in there with me. If you're tempted to say, I can't, you as a parent, there are teachers on here, you know, anyone, individuals, just in life, if you're tempted to say, I can't do that, I don't, or I don't, no way, there's no way that works, have the courage to add, yes, I can't do that yet, or I don't think that works yet, right? What can we do um, to change that to a to, to come at it a different way so that we can, or we do think it will work. Um, I just think that's a really powerful, powerful way to end this. And then that quote down there at the bottom really, really uh, hit me hard to refer to the way that some things are operating in education as soft bigotry of having label-based low academic expectations, right? So label-based meaning, well, I see this student has autism, so I already know here's what I can expect from them, you know, whatever. When we do that, that bigotry that we've set up, we have to call that out. We have to, we have to recognize it where we see it, understand it, minimize it, address it, if all children are not to be left behind. And I, I think we would all agree that we do, we do not want our students left behind. We don't want our children left behind. So we really need to examine um, the expectations that we have for them and make sure that um, we're not accidentally uh, approaching them in a way that is, um, you know, kind of having that, that potential soft bigotry. So if you're tempted to say I can't have the courage to add yet. I've included on here some additional resources. Um, these are all just all the things that we think about in supporting high expectations for students. Unpacking standards, grade level standards. So. What are the skills that go into all those standards? How can we teach those skills or address those skills individually? Making sure there's alignment in gen ed with whatever may be happening in uh, self-contained settings or, or things like that, separate settings. Looking at curriculum mapping, specially designed instruction, those are more um, sort of school-related, uh, not necessarily parent-related. The idea of universal design for learning, I would say, if you haven't already, it's an interesting concept to look into. Um, as far as how you relate to your, your children and, and working with them on their education, and then, of course, accommodating and modifying. So there's information about all of those. Here, again, is that book that we were talking about earlier, more than just being in. I've included an article here that I thought was pretty impactful about um, that relates to that idea of, of making the least dangerous assumption. If you don't know Shelley Moore, she is incredible. So what I've included here is just one video from her um, doing a TEDx talk about the importance of presenting competence, but she is an amazing advocate for inclusion. She's got a, uh, at least one book out, another book coming out. She's got a podcast. She's got um, a YouTube channel. Some of them are full-length podcasts. Some of them are five-minute podcasts, like just tons of great information and ideas, and she's really entertaining and, and um, just a wonderful, wonderful resource. So I really encourage you to check her out. And then here are some additional resources. Um, that go with each of those categories I mentioned a second ago. There are a couple on here specifically from Project Success, a couple on here specifically from the Indiana Department of Education. You can look at all of this, but just wanted to make sure you guys had as many resources as possible in all of these areas. And yes, so for Project Success ourselves, we have had some recorded webinars this school year, which you can access by going to our website. Um, and there's one more to come, which should be released today on instructional strategies for students with complex needs. Um, 
anyone, a teacher, parent, whatever, is welcome to, to listen to those. They are targeted more at, at teachers uh, and administrators, but the, the information is certainly relevant. And then we have office hours, um, which is basically being able to call into a webinar similar to what we're doing today. Uh, once you've viewed the recorded webinar, and then you can ask questions or kind of talk to other teachers who have similar experiences and, and things like that. So it's just a way to connect about the content of that webinar. So you'll see there that's in April. Do you have any interest in that? Um, okay, this is interesting. So Project Success developed a series of courses for paraprofessionals um, related, the courses are related to special education. They're available at no cost to paraprofessionals in Indiana. We also have teachers, administrators who register just to kind of check it out and, and to be able to support their paraprofessionals. I, if you uh, click on that link, to get to our website and register. If there is information that you think you might find useful in those courses as a parent, or maybe that you can pass on to someone else who might be working with your child, um, certainly uh, that might be another thing to email me about and ask, but I think there's a lot of good information there as well. So I just wanted to make that known. Project Success has a newsletter. If, if you do have a student with a more significant disability or you want to pass that information along to the teacher of any of your children who may have significant disabilities, this newsletter will get you information, resources, um, training dates, and all of that. This is our summer regional training. Um, certainly, parents would be welcome, absolutely. But uh, if, this something, if this is something you think that teachers or administrators or your school where your children uh, attend would benefit from, pass this information on to them as well. The focus of these um, trainings is going to be on building inclusive teams because with, we can't it's not a special ed thing anymore. Um, special ed can only do so much, right? And now we need gen ed involved, we need administrators involved, we all gotta come together to do this. And so Project Success is gonna try to support that process through these regional trainings. Finally, there we are. So this is the whole Project Success team here. I'm Ashley Quick on the upper right, but you can reach out to any of us on the team um, with questions, concerns, really anything if you need some kind of resource. I am so more than willing to um, hop on the phone or, or chat via email or whatever. If you have questions, concerns, uh, need an idea about where to look for, for some kind of resource, any of those questions that you all had for me earlier where we said, hey, email me and I'll you know, send you this or, or find something for you, that's my email address there, aquick at pcgus.com. And I think that's it. We do have some questions or some comments. Excellent. Yes, let's um, do it. Back when you were talking about assessment, I believe. Oh, was kind nope. of joking. It's said, never no, <laughs> nope, I'm not opening the can of worms. It's right, right. Okay. Um, and then there was a comment about you use some colors, you know, contrasting colors, which visually she felt really was very impactful um, on one of your earlier slides. And when you were oh, talking good. about, you know, saying no, but not, instead of saying no, say not yet. And she, yeah. Regina went along with that and said, that's what she does with her students, which is, which is great. Um, yeah. Meg says that she's new to this and her daughter has Down syndrome and is only two, but I'm curious, is the legislation you discussed um, supportive and backing of this presumptive competence, or is this something that as a parent, I'm going to have to advocate um, to her educators. And so then she kind of followed up just trying to think if legislation will back me, if an educator is not supportive of the idea, 
of presumpt of the presumptive competence idea. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, not, I can't say anything 100% for certain, but I would say in the vast majority of cases, the legislation will, will back you up. Um, but that's sort of why I separated that those categories, right? Because there's legislation and then sometimes there's what's actually happening in schools. Um, and, and it can differ um, sometimes, you know, more than, than I would like. Um, but, but by and large, absolutely, the legislation will back you up 100%. That the emphasis is on all students, regardless of level of disability or category of disability, having access to gen ed content, curriculum, peers, settings to the maximum extent appropriate. And then if, if you happen to get in a situation where your school is pushing back on that or, you know, you're at a, a disagreement there, um, I mean, that, that may happen. However, the legislation is clear that the access piece is, is critical for students with disabilities. So really good and, question. And that might really be a, a good boost to getting involved in those summer meetings that are going to happen across the state as a parent, you know, having your voice heard um, and, and shape or influence, if you will, um, what this might look like for our students. And so all these parents that, uh, are willing to advocate for the for their children and uh, we got to thank you so much for the information today <laughs> so, oh you're so welcome so yeah this is all there's so many moving pieces there's so many things to consider there's so many extenuating circumstances you know there's so much going on that it's hard to it's hard to address you know what will happen but you know back to the question of will i have to advocate to her educators you might you might not, they might be fabulous, you know, but regardless, don't let any of that stop you, I would say. So I talk to my teachers all the time about being squeaky. Um, so if you get pushback, whatever level on whatever, you know, topic is, is being discussed, you might have to be squeaky, right? So if the teacher isn't responsive, you might have to squeak to the principal. If the, if the district isn't, you know what I'm saying? So um, uh, we got to squeak. So parents, teachers, all of us, we got to squeak. If there's something that needs to be better, we just got to keep uh, being the squeaky wheel until someone comes to, to oil it, so. Okay, very good. Well, folks, this is your opportunity to um, ask your questions. Oh, lots of nice comments, excellent content. Our Priets current oh, thank you. State need training in this. Well, you've oh. got now. Um, do you want to go back a slide for your contact information again? With that? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, you can yeah, reach out, or at least for... There um, we go. Yeah. And uh, and at least go to the website and look at all, all of those things, all of those links that you, that Ashley shared with us earlier, including the link to the statewide trainings that are happening um, this summer. If you wish to be a part of that, you, I believe you have to register. So if you've got mm -hmm. questions, you can contact Ashley. And um, yes. so I do have a question about the certificate. Um, so any more questions? Great, great info before I go into that last part. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us. I just want to kind of do a, a, a wrap up here. Um, for the certificates, uh, the survey that you will receive at the end of the webinar uh, will, question number six, will provide a link to download a certificate of attendance for those of you that, that need one. These do work for PCG points for 
teachers, uh, foster parents, DCS typically accepts uh, our trainings, though you may want to check just to be sure. Um, and so you can go there again, for those of you that might be listening by telephone only, um, we, we know you're there, but we don't know who you are. <laughs> so you'll have to self-identify either by calling 800-332-4433 or by going to insource at insource.org and letting staff know that you participated in the webinar, but it was only by telephone. And they, they can then get your information and set up to, to get you that certificate. So if that's something that you, um, that you need, um, that would be great. Okay, well, thank you so much. This, this was truly a wonderful presentation and I knew it would be because I got to see it in advance. 